Well, good morning and welcome to Summit Church. My name is Kaylee Newkirk. I'm the regroup director here, and I'm just so glad that you guys have brought the church into this room this morning. If you are new with us or you've simply never heard of regroup, uh, it's, it's just a, a community. It's a community of healing and recovery that's based in the traditions of 12-step fellowship. And if that's all nonsense to you, you can just think of it as, as a super intense small group where we talk about our actual wounds and our actual sins, not just our hypothetical ones, and we help each other get better, which I think in a church um, can be a terrifying prospect, you know, and, and it's a shame. Church is like the one place where we want people to be able to come and talk about their sins. Like a hospital is the same place. It's the one place we want people to be able to come and talk about their injuries, right? It's like the one place we want people to, to, to come and talk about their sins, but it's the place where we are most afraid to, and our hope is to change that. So, so let me put you at ease just from the beginning. Regroup it's not a ministry where we have, you know, holy leaders coming in to help those unholy sinners. Everyone who leads a regroup cohort has already been through regroup as a participant, or they've had other 12-step recovery experience of their own, and, and that's intentional. If someone comes to me and they say, you know, I really want to lead regroup because I want to help those people, they don't make the cut because it's never, ever those people. It's always us people because we are all addicted to sin in our own unique ways. My daughter, Ember, she came home from daycare. This was probably two months ago, and, and I was asking about her day, and she said, well, Mommy, Nicholas is bad. That's not his real name. And I said, well, babe, why, why do you say that Nicholas is bad? And she said, well, because he, throw thing, he throws things and he spits. And, and I, I was thinking for a moment, how do I teach, how do I teach empathy to a five-year-old? You know, because she, she just started kindergarten, and, and, and these kids, these, these poor kids are coming from all manner of challenging home situations. And, and, and my hope for Ember is that even, even as a five-year-old, even at her young age, she'll be able to first be curious before she condemns. And so I take this as a teachable moment, and I say, well, babe, you know, sometimes, sometimes people do bad things, but they're not actually bad people. You know, may, maybe something sad happened, and maybe that's why Nicholas behaved that way at school. Maybe something sad happened, and, and he didn't really mean to be bad. And she looked very thoughtful for a minute, and then she said, nah, he had a smile on his face. And if you spit with a smile, you definitely meant to spit. Spoiler alert, guys. Church is full of sinners. <laughs> The church is full of sinners. Everybody in the church is a sinner. You are, I definitely am. Your mom is for sure. Your pastors, your pastors are sinners. They fail, they overeat, they lose their temper. They, they, they say that they have plans to get out of going to your baby shower. Some of them watch Game of Thrones. They're sinners. The church is full of sinners, but it gives us kind of some sense of security, you know, to, to, keep, our, to keep our sins within an acceptable range. You know, like church sins, that's okay. Greed, gossip, Pride. Nobody makes a stink about those. We, we try to stay away from the big ticket sins, right? Alcoholism, drug abuse, porn. As long as we avoid those, we, we have some sense of security in our standing before God. It's, it's, it's those people. Those people need help. Those people, they need Jesus. Those you know, sure, we all spit, but those people spit with a smile. So whether you meant to or not, 
you've joined us on a regroup Sunday, that one Sunday every year where we subject you to a regroup style teaching against your will in the hopes that you will come back tomorrow for more. Literally, our, our regroup season kicks off our regular Monday meetings tomorrow at the Herndon campus at 7 p.m., and we'd love for you to join us. But before we get into the word, let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for regroup. Thank you for this church. Thank you that you changed the moral and spiritual trajectory of my life through this ministry, and I'm so grateful. I don't know where I would be without it. I don't know who I would be without it. Lord, you, you dropped it into my life at just the right time, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that we have a church where we can talk openly about our struggles and not fear rejection or shame. Lord, every, every person needs that. Lord, I pray that over this next 30 minutes as we spend some time together looking at your word, that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up us to the possibility that we still need you. That even though maybe some of us have been walking with you for years, Lord, that we still need you, that we still need you like it's day one, that none of us are good enough to be good enough for God. That all of us stand equal at the foot of your cross, that we all need you to peel back the onion of our sin and help us to deal not only with those crusty parts on the outside, but those tender whitewashed layers on the inside, which smell just as foul. So Lord, help us. Give us courage to see ourselves as we really are and give us the will to move toward holiness, to move toward the people that you've called us to be. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. We are continuing today in our series on early acts where we're exploring the ways that the first church was formed and the things that they did and the way that they turned the world upside down in the hope that we, the church of today, will be able to imitate the best of what that first church did. And as, as we mentioned, today we're in Acts chapter 7, which is the last speech of the first martyr, Stephen. And up to this point in the book of Acts, the, the apostles have received the Holy Spirit. They're preaching and baptizing. And despite persecution from the Jewish ruling class, people keep coming. People keep joining the church. And, and they've gotten so big that they're, they're beginning to have to enlist some help. And so the apostles appoint these seven men to assist them. And Stephen is one of those. And Stephen is killing it. He, he's, he's incredible. He, he's doing signs and wonders, and not only that, he is a singularly gifted communicator. So much so that the, that the Jewish teachers keep losing their arguments to him, and the church of Christ keeps, they, they keep gaining converts, and so, of course, the, the Jewish leaders, then they find some people to accuse Stephen of blasphemy against Moses and against the temple, and they put him on trial. And then he gives this speech, which is almost the entirety of chapter 7. He gives this speech, and then they convict him, and they take him outside, and they throw rocks at him until he dies. That's chapter 7 in a nutshell. But Stephen's swan song is brilliant. We can't read all of it. It's like 60 verses, but, but you should read it sometime today. And it's brilliant. The first 20 verses are a history of God's chosen people from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, and then Verse 20, he, 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 he lands at Moses, Moses who they are accusing him of, of speaking against. So we're going to start there, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. This isn't in your bulletin, so you can just listen as I read, and I'll tell you when it picks up in your bulletin. 
Verse 20, at that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. Verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Verse 30, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. 36, Moses led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 37, this is where your bulletin picks up. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. And so far, so good, right? I mean, uh, Stephen is being accused of, of speaking against Moses in the temple, and a lot of what he has done so far in his speech is praising the Moses that he's accused of speaking against. He's, he's, he's talking about the highlights, right? And, and, and the Jewish listeners, they might have even been nodding their heads in agreement. They might even have thought, you know, this is Stephen's defense speech. This is him saying, you know, pleading for mercy, saying, you know, I, I love Moses too, you know, don't kill me. But, but then here it comes, verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. So here are the Jews, and they are rejecting Jesus because they think the law given through Moses is enough to save them, to make them right with God. And Stephen's saying, guys, let's review our own history, okay? God sent us Moses, and we ditched him for a golden calf. God sent us Jesus, and we murdered him. The law is not going to save you. You've already broken it. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The law isn't going to save you, but Jesus can. He will. Don't resist him. And the crowd is, is so angry that it says they, they covered their ears so that they couldn't hear. And then they dragged him out into the street and they threw rocks until he died. This is going to be a one-point sermon, guys. But don't get excited. I'm going to make that point so many ways. You'll be sick of it by the end. I, I don't know how to give a sermon that's less than 30 minutes. I'm sorry. But there's only one point, and it's this. Truth. Truth is a matter of life and death. Truth is a matter of life and death. This was certainly true for Stephen on a literal level here. He's being accused of blaspheming the temple and the law, and he knows that his life is on the line. He knows that if he doesn't make a very good defense that he will die that day. Now, he could lie, right? He could, he could lie. And, and, and I know that we all want to think, you know, we wouldn't. We want to all believe that we're the Stevens of the world and that, you know, we would always tell the truth for the truth's sake. But let's be honest, we've lied for lesser dangers than this, right? How do you think people rejected contestants end up on American Idol in the first place, right? Somebody lied to them. Someone lied, probably their mom. Timmy, you have a wonderful singing voice. Somebody lied to Timmy. 
right? I lied to my daughter's kindergarten teacher the very first day of school. Uh, <laughs> Rob had sent her to school with this gizmo watch, which was pre-programmed. It could call both of our phones. And the teacher saw it, and she sent us a note home that said, your daughter cannot have a phone watch at school. And I said, I completely understand, absolutely. We're, we're totally on board. And then I proceeded to hide that phone watch deep into my daughter's backpack. Because no, I'm not going to let her run around in a sea full of tiny predators, Miss Kern. I don't care what you say. <laughs> Kindergarten's hard. Okay, it's hard. And I, you know, I, I know that she's been in daycare since eight weeks, but that was voluntary. And this is involuntary. And it feels different. I, we went to kindergarten orientation. And I could, I could pick out all the parents who had older kids already in school because they're like scrolling their Instagram or like ordering toilet paper on Amazon. And then there's me and all the other first-time K parents. And we're like sweating and just furiously trying to take pictures of the just terrible slides that they had for the presentation. It was awful. It's very, very stressful. So I lied. So I lied to a woman who spends seven hours a day in a room full of five-year-olds. I know she deserves better. Stephen could have lied. He could have lied. And you know what? I don't think we would have even blamed him because he was a gifted teacher. We hear that over and over again in the text. Nobody could match his wisdom and insight. Men who had studied their whole lives are losing arguments to him, and the people were responding the people were responding. They were listening to him. They were coming to faith in Jesus. They were inviting their Jewish friends into that faith. People were responding to him. He could, have, he could have lied just this one time and then gone on to do so much good just by staying alive to share his gift another day. But Stephen knows that's not, that's not a life. Stephen knows it is better to die for the truth than to live with a lie. It would have eaten away at his heart. Guys, the truth is life and death because lies will kill you from the inside. When I started out as a participant in Regroup, I had a bunch of friends. I had a bunch of friends. I'd been attending Summit for a little while. I was in a small group. I was plugged in community. But I was so alone. I was so alone. Because I had secrets, you know, about, about who I really was, about what I w- was really doing. And, and in order to keep my secrets, I had to tell lies and half-truths and generally just try to present a mask to the people who were closest to me. And I was dying inside. Because in my small group, you know, every single Wednesday, I sat in a room with 12 other people and we laughed and we prayed and we studied the scriptures and and we shared all our prayer requests and and I was so alone because none of the people sitting in the seats beside me knew who I actually was. Lies will starve you of the intimacy that you were created for because nobody knows the real you. No, No wonder it's lonely. No wonder it's lonely because no amount of friendship or acceptance will ever make you feel secure because you know that it's not really you that they've accepted. And so, you know, you're given a praise report about how your boat survived the hurricane and no one in the room knows that that your marriage is not surviving the porn. And you're, you know, in your Christian book club drinking wine and you're laughing at memes and no one in the room knows that you lost your faith years ago. You just didn't want to give up book club. 
Nobody knows about the pills, nobody knows about the depression, nobody knows about the debt, because you're only telling them what you think they can handle and still choose to be your friend. Guys, it's no way to live. It's death. It's not living. Lies will kill you from the inside because you are always living in fear. And maybe not fear of, of physical death like Stephen is here, but fear of losing your life all the same. Fear of losing the life that you've built, the reputation that you've built, the mask you present to the world. You're always living in fear of being found out and you have to work so hard to maintain those lies until really you don't even know where the lies end and where you begin. They infect us. I was reading this thing in the Smithsonian about this, this fungus that infects carpenter ants. And, you know, the, the spores go airborne, and then one of the spores will settle on a little unsuspecting ant as he passes by, and it will, it will lodge itself into his head via the exoskeleton and, and work its way into his brain. And then this fungus begins to, uh, begins to take over his brain in a process that's actually called zombification. This is crazy. It, it turns the ant into a tiny zombie. So at first, there's just small changes. You know, the ants will get a little hyperactive. Sometimes it will stumble when it walks. Uh, sometimes it will accidentally turn in the wrong direction, but then it'll come back. But then one day, one day after these little kind of small changes have been creeping in, one day the ant just turns and wanders off from the pack entirely. Because the fungus which has now taken complete control of its brain, is steering it towards locations that would provide the ideal conditions for the fungus to live and to thrive. Then the fungus compels the ant to bite down on this certain leaf, and then it, it just stays there, clinging, until eventually the fungus gets so big that it bursts out of the ant's head and spreads its spores to infect something else. Lies will kill you from the inside because they demand you make adjustments to keep them safe. They will steer you toward the locations that provide the ideal conditions for their survival, but it is a slippery slope. You know, you make an adjustment here, you go a different direction there, and pretty soon you see that all your steps are being taken for the benefit of maintaining your lie, and, and it gets away from us. Suddenly it gets away from you, and, and it's not your lie anymore. You're its human. Don't you want to be free? Don't, don't you want to have to, do you want to be able to have a conversation with someone without having to think so hard about what you have or have not told them already? I think, I think it's easy to lose sight of how important the truth is when it, when it feels like our life is on the line, like our reputation is on the line. But living in fear isn't living. Living in isolation isn't really living. Don't, don't waste years of your life trying to maintain a reputation that you're just going to have to tell more lies in order to keep. It's not worth it. That, that lie may keep you alive today, but it will bleed you out over time. Life, truth is life and death for each of us individually, for every single human heart. The truth is life and death, not just for us, but, but also for the people God has given us to love. I think one of the most beautiful things about Acts chapter 7 is the last two verses. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen loved these people. He loved them even as they were murdering him. He's asking God to forgive them even though they're killing him. Stephen, he wasn't telling them the truth to hurt them. He wasn't telling them the truth to offend them. He was telling them the truth because he knew the truth was life and death for them too. They were convinced that they didn't need Jesus and Stephen knew that that would be the death of them. Guys, what we believe actually matters. You know, not, 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 not just how passionately we believe it, but the, the, the content, the what, what we believe actually matters. In the, 17, in the 1700s, a, a large portion of Europeans were terrified of tomatoes. This is real history. I'm not making this up. They were afraid of tomatoes. Tomatoes had been brought to Europe um, around the 16th century from Central America, and, and when Europeans ate them, uh, they would, at a rate that was, you know, alarming, they would start to get sick and die. And so uh, this was very mysterious, it was very frightening, and, and, and the Europeans started to name the tomato the poison apple, and they generally avoided it. At that time, the wealthy classes in Europe were using pewter uh, plates and utensils to eat from, and, and pewter was considered a, a kind of a sign of class and wealth, and so these families would display their pewter tableware um, like fine china when they weren't using it and they would eat from it in in the evening. But here's the thing. Pewter at that time was an alloy of tin and lead. And so the tomatoes weren't really the problem. It it was the plates, right? It was the plates. The the acidity of the tomatoes was leaching the lead out of the pewter, and these people were getting sick. They were dying of lead poisoning. But the Europeans, they didn't didn't know that, so they thought the tomatoes were the problem. They threw out the tomatoes, and then they kept eating off of the lead plates, I think one of the hardest things about our current moment in history is that we live in a post-truth culture. A lot of people don't believe in absolute truth anymore. You might not believe in absolute truth anymore. We, you know, we hear that phrase, well, that's your truth, this is my truth, but guys, guys there, there, is still, there are still things in this world that are true objectively. Gravity, entropy, the, the, the anatomy of the human brain. I don't want a neurosurgeon working on me who doesn't believe in objective truth, you know? Like, I just cut where it feels right. That's a terrible idea. Barner released a study last year that showed 35% of people uh, don't, uh, only 35% of people believe there was an absolute truth. 44% of people believe that all truth is relative. They, they made this statement that I just thought was so compelling. Truth is increasingly regarded as something felt rather than something known. Guys, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. There is still absolute truth in the world, and that truth is life and death. No, it's not the tomato that's killing you. It's the lead. But, you know, I feel like it's the tomato. Guys, our our hearts are deceptive in this. They're deceptive because because we will cling. We will cling to the beliefs that we want to be true. We will cling to the beliefs that bring us comfort, the beliefs that we've built our lives around. Our hearts will not give them up easily, even in the face of immense, immense uh, evidence to the contrary. Our hearts won't give them up easily. This is a picture of my husband the week before Hurricane Dorian. 
I don't know if you can tell from this photo, but he has taken one ladder to get to that branch, and now he has a ladder in that branch. I don't even know how that's possible. This is a fair summary of what it's like to be married to Rob, though. It's, you know, it's funny, it's exciting. We always hit our medical deductible. My husband doesn't believe in danger or going to the doctor or being sick or anything that generally suggests his body is vulnerable to harm. He, he chooses to believe that, that you know, the universe has no power over his physical well-being, and so he climbed this tree uh, and put a ladder in it and climbed the ladder. And when, this isn't just like this instance, like when he's sick and I say, hey, do you want some NyQuil? He's like, I'm not sick, and I don't argue with him, you know, because if you're not sick, you can still drop our daughter off at kindergarten. But more recently, I realized that, that our daughter, Ember, is starting to pick up on some of his habits. So now she doesn't ever want to be sick anymore. She refuses to acknowledge when she's sick. E- even if there's, like, snot pouring out of her face, she'll just be like, No, I'm good, Bobby. I'm good. I'm not sick. More recently, um, she had a, she had, she'd come down with this uh, nasty cough and cold that was going around the daycare. And I called the pediatrician. They said, give her some albuterol treatments, um, breathing treatments to quiet the cough in order for her to you know, get to sleep a little better. So after dinner, I said, hey, babe, we're going to do a Sammy the Seal. That's the name of her nebulizer, which is in the shape of a seal. I think that helps the kids. Um, so I said, we're going to do a Sammy the Seal. And she's like, I'm not sick, mommy. I don't have a cold. <coughs> cold. <clears throat> nope. I don't have a cold. And I said, babe, do you know what a cold is? And she said, what? And I said, it's when you're coughing and you're sneezing and both your nostrils are stuffed up. And she said, well, only this nostril is stuffed up, so I don't have a cold. <laughs> Guys, our, our hearts will blind us to the things that we don't want to see. Check your other nostril, babe. You're sick. Our hearts will blind us. Scriptures say, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Our hearts will blind us to the things we don't want to see. Our hearts will even blind us to the things that we do actually see. You know why people get addicted to stuff, to drugs and alcohol and porn? For most people, these aren't the problem. These are the solution to some misery in their life that they're trying to escape or to numb. Whatever the addiction has become, it was first an anesthetic. And and we know it. You know, most of the time we know it. We know, yes, I know this is hurting me. I, I do see it. I see the truth. I'm just not ready to give up the lead plate yet. Now listen, I'm not judging you. I've been there. I've been there clinging to my plate because you know what? Freedom is most risky for the people who are most miserable. They have the most to lose by giving up their habitual comforts. For some of them, it may be the only comfort that they have. It's risky, especially for people who are in pain. If, if I give up this thing, am I going to make it? If I let go of this thing, am I going to be able to survive my painfully unspectacular life? The, the, the little miseries of diapers and school and bills and loneliness, I, I, I see it. I see the lead is killing me, but I'm just, just not ready to give up the plate yet. 
Your plate might be addiction, might be the kind of big ticket traditional items of recovery, but listen, because this is important, it could just as easily be your legalism. We live in a moment in history where every good thing has been made into a potentially addictive substance. It's not just drugs and alcohol and porn anymore. It's, it's, it's TV, it's food. I mean, guys, what, what did you buy to eat in preparation for the hurricane? Because I bought a jar of Biscoff cookie butter, which was gone by Monday with nary a cloud in the sky. Okay? <laughs> TV. When's the last time you watched just one episode of a show? I mean, if there were more available, it doesn't count if it's against your will. I almost like flunked a class watching Battlestar Galactica. We don't, we don't have to wait for anything anymore. It's just always available in abundance all the time. Every good thing has been made into a potentially addictive substance. And the root of these addictions, the root of all addiction, is a compulsive grasping at that which brings us comfort and a compulsive flight from that which brings us pain, and who sitting in here has not done one or the other? Our church, every church, is rife with addictions that have no 12-step fellowship to help them. Gossip. Do, do you share prayer requests more than you actually pray? Check your other nostril. Pride. We... <laughs> We, we cannot fathom being wrong in this country. We can, we can barely tolerate other people being allowed to disagree with us. Guys, what, what, are the chances, what are the chances that everything that you think is right? Let's just like throw a percentage on that. Because in 1932, Albert Einstein said, there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtainable. We're not right all the time. We're not right all the time. Even the smartest people in the world, we're not right all the time. Our hearts deceive us. This, this world will sell you a bill of goods. It'll say, you know, just follow your heart and you'll find all the truth you need. Just follow your heart. Well, how's that working out for you? Because I followed my heart. I followed my heart into a string of destructive relationships until I collapsed on the doorstep of Rieger because it was killing me. A young man in Texas followed his heart into a Walmart in El Paso and shot 22 people of color. Guys, we are not right all the time. Our hearts deceive us. Our hearts do not tell us the truth. We're not right all the time. And, and, and even when we are, even in those few moments that we're actually right, we can be so wrong about the way that we're right that we sin in our rightness. Guys, I promise you that your, your best contribution to humanity is not going to be made through the comments section of a Facebook page. Pride is an addiction. Check the other nostril. Greed. Envy law. The Jewish leaders railed against Stephen because, because if he was right, if he was right and the law couldn't save them, it called into question everything they had built their lives around. You know, I, I imagine the Pharisees, I, I don't think that they rejected Jesus because they just wanted all the glory and the power for themselves. I, I think they rejected Jesus because, because they couldn't bear to face the possibility 
that everything they'd worked so hard for was simply not enough. Stephen wasn't trying to hurt him. He was trying to save them from, from their death grip on the poisonous lead plate of a works-based salvation. There, there is absolute truth in the world still, and they were missing it, and that, that miss was going to kill them. And Stephen puts his life on the line in an effort to save theirs. There is truth in the world, and the truth is life and death for us and for the people God has put in our path. And not only that, it's, it's, it's life and death for the whole world. The, the martyring of Stephen was the impetus for the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem. Right, our, right after he dies, Acts 8.1 tells us, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Which on the one hand, it, it feels like, like this really sad ending to Stephen's story, right? But remember Acts 1. Remember, right before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Before Stephen died, they'd only been his witnesses in Jerusalem. It was Stephen's death that pushed them out into the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth, and into Jesus' great commission to, to countless people who, who, who were living without hope or who, who were giving their lives to the little gods that don't give life back. How, how many people across the, the, the world now have access to a Savior who brings eternal life because Stephen told the truth even though his life was on the line? Full disclosure, I really want every single one of you in this room to come to regroup on Monday. I, and I don't think it's really a surprise to anybody, but, but I want you to go because I've learned from my own regroup experience that the truth is life and death. Even when it's discovering truth about ourselves that we'd rather not know, that truth is still life. It, it sets us free from, from bondage that we may not know we're in. And it... And it, and it sets us free from loneliness that we've created in our isolation and, and, and sharing that truth, that truth that we, that we are guilty, that we do fail, that, that nothing we can do can make us good enough for God, that that truth will give life to someone else. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but listen, the last thing people in this world need is the Instagram highlight reel of your Christianity. Because who can live up to that? We look at that and, it, and we lose hope because I, can, you know, I could never be that perfect. And if that's what it takes to get to heaven, well, I guess I don't have it in me. Guys, listen, the only thing you need to have in you is him. This world needs to see imperfect people being perfectly loved and accepted. That's what brings hope and healing. What's, what's the point of the church if we're not telling people the good news about God's forgiveness? And how can we tell them that if we never admit we need to be forgiven? If you think the church isn't a safe place to bring your struggles into the light, keep in mind, we are the church. It's not a building. It's you and me. You are the church. I am the church. So you and I will set the standard for how safe our fellow Christians feel bringing their struggles within these walls. 
There are people sitting beside you in these seats and they are still being bullied by their secrets. There are people sitting beside you who are headed for heaven, but they are living in hell because they are so isolated, so afraid of being known. Guys, we are the church. We have the responsibility and the privilege of making this place safe for their stories to be told truthfully. And that begins by telling our own. So come and join us Monday night and we'll start telling them together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a place that we have the opportunity to share our struggles together. Lord, I've been scared off from churches in the past and and I'm so grateful for this one because I learned that I really could be myself here. I really could be who I was, sins and all. And you loved me and you accepted me and you used the people of this community to help me understand how you felt about me. And all of that helped me to be the person that you've called me to be, Lord. I didn't just acknowledge my sins, I wanted freedom from them because I understood your love and I wanted in gratitude to serve you as a result. Lord, I pray for freedom for this church, for every person in these walls. Lord, I know that every single one of us struggles with something. Every single one of us hides something. Every single one of us needs to experience the freedom of being fully known by you and by the people that you've given us to love and recognizing that that being known does not mean being rejected. That being known means being alive. Lord, be near to us. I pray that if regroup is the next right step for anyone in this room today, that they would take it, that they would have the courage to do so, and that they would find life there as I have. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope.